everyone. Welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schiphol. And I'm Steve Jones. And today on the podcast, Jens, we have someone who uh, really is, I mean, eccentric for starters, but um, but she is you know, the daughter of greatness. Uh, Amazing. Amazing. How do you even, you know, deal being the daughter of greatness? I mean, man, were there high expectations growing <laughs> up or what? Well, she, she definitely embraced it. And, uh, and knew what she, you know, what she had in a, in a, in a father. Uh, and what I really loved about this person, who I haven't named yet, uh, is her her honesty, her straightforward honesty, like to you know towards uh, you know towards what she's going through and how uh, you know she's experiencing things in life. And we'll get into that in a in a little bit. But it's Shirley King. That we have on the program, and she is the daughter of BB King, blues legend BB King. Wow, what an honor to get to interview her! Yes, it was uh, it was cool. We talked for about an hour, so I don't want to draw this intro out too long. I want to be able to get right into it. We have a, a lot to get to, um, but first, Jens, I do have a story for you. You do. We, yes, this story. I, I I think I know which story you're going to tell. You've been uh, dangling the fish in front of me for a little while. Um, is that a thing? Do people say that? Dangling, dangling fish. fish yes. Pregnant. People dangle fish. Yeah. Dangle carrots. Is is it a carrot that people dangle? Or? No. I don't know, man. But I, I think there's a story, and uh, I am excited to hear it. Okay. So I have a little bit of a story. It's not that exciting. Yeah. But let's hear your story first. Well, we've talked about my neighbor in the past uh, and the challenges that arose with her. And I don't know if we talked on the last pod about uh, what was happening. I feel like we did. Did we? Um, I remember talking to you about your neighbor. However, I also don't remember if that was on this podcast. <laughs> we, we could have done something to figure that out, but we, we chose not to. Uh, anyway. Uh, uh, are we going to give your neighbor a name here, or is this going to be anonymous? This is anonymous neighbor. It could be any of my neighbors, really, because uh, <laughs> I have so many. Uh, if the neighbors are listening, um, this particular neighbor will be able to probably identify herself. Right. Uh, but so... so there have been challenges. She, uh, she has not been a fan of, um, you know, of us. And she's she's ha- has some, I, I don't know how to describe it other than she has some stability issues, um, among other things. Where And she's not great at communicating with people. Um, there, she's not a very positive person. She, you know, so it's, it's tough. Did you say... Did you say she has ability issues? Dis- she has some... Did I say ability? I don't know. It's like a disability. I don't know. Thing. You might have cut out. I heard yeah. ability, so mm-hmm. I was thinking, oh, she's not very able. Well, she is physically able, uh, but she doesn't uh, work. She's, so she's home all the time. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, she has been pretty frustrated with, with us for different reasons. But uh, she, you know, I, I was concerned partially that she you know may have killed my girlfriend's cat this past week oh my god and uh, you know um, are you serious did i not share any of this with you yet no all i know about the um the all i all this is all i know about the neighbor you and i had a, a brief chat about it she's only been around i mean she's only been a neighbor for 
seven or eight months or something. Mm -hmm. uh, she is your closest neighbor, so there's no way to avoid her. Right. Literally share she, a driveway. Yeah. Um, she has this amazing ability to drive up and down the driveway without touching the gas pedal. Yes. I mean, she's like going less than one mile an hour and your driveway is like a quarter of a mile long or something. I mean, it <laughs> takes a while, right? And sometimes she just stops at the end of the driveway where the road is and decides to take a nap. Yes, that happened. that's happened, yes. Yeah, uh. and then there's uh, the sprinkler thing where she... Uh, turns on her sprinkler um, and just leaves it on all day long. And then this this past week, you know, after this incident that I'm about to tell you about, she uh, like she left her truck door open all night. Um, I didn't have an inclination to close it because I was not feeling very neighborly toward her. And though in the morning my guilt got the better of me and uh, and I shut it for her um okay but um but yeah these are the type of you know i guess you can say stability stability is what i said not ability um so this yeah so definitely this neighbor has challenges yeah and so uh yeah so my uh, girlfriend tracy's cat went missing on la uh, last monday and uh i mean the first time we the last time we saw it was the night before we've been letting the cat sleep outdoors uh because mm -hmm cat would wake me up in the morning and we were okay with him being an indoor outdoor cat and uh and so that was kind of a decision that was made and then um so monday we didn't see him uh at uh at, at all and uh tracy was out um looking for her cat calling calling his name striker striker and then uh our neighbor who shall remain nameless did one of these striking across the neck motions which because mm -hmm, she was not uh, so we don't know whether that was intended for Tracy or to say that she killed the cat because the cat was gone we, we and it, at first I was like okay the cat might have just left for a couple of days a day or two you know or come back cats do that sometimes my cat uh -huh. left for eight days at one point right and right right yeah cats do that sometimes they just kind of go off wandering or something or i don't know maybe they get lost or, i don't know cats are usually pretty good at finding their way home but but um after two days of the cat being missing like i'm starting uh -huh. to think that um maybe she did do something to the cat and so you know i'm I ch i'm like uh, at night and in the morning i'm like checking her waist bin uh yeah i was just about to say that i mean mm -hmm. if you're going to be if you're going to be suspicious like that, you have to act really quickly before like the garbage people come. So that's the, probably the first thing I would have done too. Check the garbage bin. Yeah, and so so I, I was looking at. I didn't see anything, uh, I, but there were a couple bags in it, you know. And I didn't want to open them because she's there. She never leaves, right? And hello, she's gone right now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> luckily, so I can talk freely. But. Um, but uh, so then we wait till she goes to the end of the, she drives her truck with the waste bin in the back to the end of the path and then uh, and then comes back. And then that night we went and looked in the trash at the end of the path mm -hmm. um, before the, the, you know, the trash was taken and didn't see anything. So we didn't have any information there. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of days later, uh, um, the Tracy found the cat's collar and the tag and the tile that uh, tracked it because that we also mm -hmm. looked the perimeter of the vineyard um you know uh, looking for for the cat and kind of see if the tile would ping because it should mm -hmm. should pick up 
so if it was tracked within 150 yards. We had done that mm-hmm. on like Tuesday and mm-hmm. found nothing. And so then by Thursday or I think it might have been Friday even, um, she found the you know the pieces of the collar and and tile and the and the tag which was bent a little bit in you know in front of the yard near the oak tree in front of our house. And so we're like, okay, well, you know, what did what did that, you know? We don't know. We, we still don't know. And so um, flash forward, you know, forward, uh, the neighbor um, then decides this past weekend while I'm, you know, we're doing yard work all weekend, pulling weeds. Mm-hmm. I went and got a truck full of dirt, you know, for topsoil for the planters we're putting together. While I'm gone, um, the neighbor went and talked to, Tracy and my daughter and she was like mm-hmm. she wanted to be neighborly uh and was you know was asking about the cat and everything and she's I mean Tracy asked her you know if she'd seen her and was looking for signs that you know mm-hmm. or anything but didn't see any reaction like um that uh there was any sign sign that there was her so I, I don't know uh but she's but she's acting neighborly now and it's uh it's interesting so and that's the first time she's been acting neighborly, I think, since, since ever. She, since right? she wasn't like I've had like two conversations with her in the months that she's lived here. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, and one was her like thanking me because I, like, over after the fires a couple years ago, she's been in and out of the the house here, you uh-huh. know, and uh, but after the fires a couple years ago, I had knocked on her door and, um, you know, try and notify her about it, you know, but didn't get a response. So I texted her dad and. Uh, so he knew and so she was really appreciative of that i went to that effort to try and save her and through the fires um right and uh but all that went out the window recently so god how bizarre yeah i don't even know how i would react you know i mean i'm just trying to imagine the entire scene where i'm talking to the neighbor you know and i and she does that thing you know that cutting through the through the neck or throat or something yeah. i mean that could mean two things right either you know shut up you're being too loud or whatever or yeah dead. yeah exactly that's, that's it right it's, <laughs> Chopped its, head off, it's, it's hard right? to misunderstand that and so when she was talking to tracy i guess she was you know she apologized for you know not for that specifically but for you know mm-hmm. i guess being short or rude or whatever because she's she said her her bird died, um, you know, and that that she had, and and so Tracy's like, oh, how how old was the bird? And she's, uh, or how long did you have the bird? And she's like, um, a day or two. Uh, she, she, uh, I think took, a, I don't know if she took a bird from a nest or and bird fell out of the nest and she tried to save it or what happened uh-huh. there, but a bird died in her hands for another two days, and so she was really distraught over it, and uh, oh that was God. causing her to be a real asshole <laughs> oh my god i don't even know how to react i mean in one sense this is tragic you know yeah and then the other sense is well you know did that really happen you know I feel really bad for the cat no matter what the situation is you know poor kitty i hope the kitty comes back eventually but i don't know i mean you guys found the collar it was for whatever reason there by the tree which is next to the house without the cat was that a sign or was that a wild animal that somehow got on the property and then left the property with the cat intact without the collar on the cat. Like, what? which of those two is, was it, Jens? I don't know, man. It's time for some security cameras, I think. <laughs> I know. If I'd had security cameras on that spot on the lawn, this wouldn't be a conversation other than, wow, look at the shit that happened, you know? But, um, 
Yeah. Oh my God, that's freaky. Yeah. So that's my story. Uh, <laughs> that is freaky. What if she, I don't want to make up any rumors or anything, but what if she collects like animals or something? Like she has a little pet cemetery in her backyard. We explored the possibility because I'm like, oh, Cliff left too. Was she living here when Cliff left? You know, yeah, just, that was just years ago. Yeah, but she's been off and on on the house here. And so I don't think she was here then, but I, I don't remember exact timelines. So... It could mm. it could be, but I I don't know. I just don't know. Right, Cliff was your cat, your yes. orange cat from that I had for back. ten years, yeah. and so yeah. Oh my god, that's creepy, man. That's creepy. Um, yeah, you. Wow. You you have a story you wanted to share? I I do. Um, it's not about death. But Good. It's about a near death experience. Lift I guess you could say it's about a near death experience. Um, not really, but. Uh, I do. It uh, doesn't involve your neighbor. How it, however, it does involve um, a birthday party. Your daughter recently turned 10. We talked about that. She did. On a previous podcast, and we were going to talk a little bit about um, kind of the, you know, how that was. So I'm just going to do my little follow-up. And um, I've got to say, her 10th birthday party was a lot of fun. Uh, for me, it was very short-lived. I think I was only there for maybe... <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> you, you, you made a good visit. Like some people were there far less. I mean, I missed some of the first people that were there because I was picking up pizza and cupcakes. So yeah, yeah, I was surprised I showed up before you did. Usually you're always uh, the earlier one. I had to wait until the cupcake place opened up. So <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Oh. So um, anyway, yeah. So I mean, uh, I just um, I wanted to have some fun with the kids. Uh, I was trying to remember what it was like being 10 years old, and I wanted to kind of continue the the water fight that we had had um yeah. on your birthday yes uh, which was just like a week or something before hers and um so uh i had you bring the squirt guns i had a a a a, a cooler a cooler full of water that i brought you did and that was a hit like uh, <laughs> that was the way to go a whole cooler full of water and i think your mom oh my god i think your mom thought it was like a cooler full of goodies like it was a barbecue or uh -huh. something and, and when i had t taken the cooler out of the car and dragged it across the street and the whole idea behind the cooler was um you know social distancing and it was going to be a fun you know outdoor birthday and um let's try to not drag you know dirt and stuff all over the house or backyard or whatever if we can just have a refill station yeah you know um if things get messy we'll just have it right on the sidewalk and uh while i was bringing the cooler uh to the driveway your mom was getting all excited it's like all oh, right now we're talking and she opens <laughs> it and she sees water in it and she's like what okay <laughs> she no idea. Good no idea. <laughs> and i was wondering if she was thinking did the ice melt I like where are the drinks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it was funny. Um, and then somebody right next door explained, "Oh, that's the water for the water fight." Anyway, so sorry, uh, Steve's mom for um, for confusing her there. But uh, anyway, the water fight got going uh, pretty quickly, and uh, within the first two minutes, I, la I managed to land, trip over myself, land on my face um, on the sidewalk. I learned several things that day, uh, Steve. One. Um, I can't keep up with 10-year-olds. That You learned that, okay. <laughs> I learned that at my age, I cannot keep up with 10-year-olds, apparently. Uh, and two, 
I had forgotten how much falling down on concrete hurts. You didn't let it slow you down, though. You rolled. You ro- literally rolled and then ke- uh, got up and kept moving. You weren't down for the count or anything like that, you know? You- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't really, it didn't really phase me until later because in my mind, I still had my objective of I've got two solo cups of water and I'm going to douse these girls, right? Yeah. But I had tripped and the water went flying and my cups were broken. So I was... During that roll, thinking, okay, I gotta grab the cups and keep on going here, but then I realized, well, that's not gonna work. I'm gonna have to go refill the cups. And you lost your glasses, by the way. Because I need to get new cups. Yeah, and you lost your glasses, by the way. (laughs) And I lost my glasses. I didn't even realize I lost my glasses. And then, and then there are a bunch of people that are asking me if I'm okay, and I'm wondering, why are people asking me that? I just need (laughs) cups and I need some water. But then I'm realizing, hmm, maybe I should check my elbows and knees and stuff and oh my god dude i had lost some you, skin you left a layer of skin on the pavement and <laughs> i did and i didn't even look at the pavement maybe i should have i'm hoping it wasn't too much of a war zone but um but uh yeah your mom was nice enough to just get some big huge band-aids and i really didn't think it was a big deal but the more i started you know examining my limbs the more i realized wow i think i'm pretty fucked up i better go home <laughs> yeah and that was a little over a week ago, right? Yes. And dude, I still look like this. Look like um, I don't know how to describe it, but it looks like I had a major wipeout on the skateboard or something. It's all super superficial. None of it's deep, but there are big, big areas of skin that require you know two band aids, two of these big band aids to cover. Yeah, that just got scraped off, and it's painful man like i have to take um ibuprofen just so i can sleep at night um because it's so irritating it just keeps me awake um but whatever i mean it's no big deal yeah yeah you, you survived and you know and i was yelling at uh my daughter fern to i was like Get, uh, grab the glasses! Grab the glasses! Like we were, uh, ye- we were yelling for the her, for the kids to grab the glasses, and she's like looking for like glass, you know, like uh, glasses sort of thing, you know. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, eventually we were like, okay, we have to go get <laughs> someone. I think figured it out, but she didn't know what she was looking for, even though it was like right by her feet, uh, yeah. your, your glasses that, that you lost. So. Was, uh, well, hey, you know what? If she, if she's, if when you're saying glasses and she's trying to look for a beer glass, then hey, she knows me pretty well, right? She does. <laughs> yeah. So that was the uh, the big fall in uh, at Fern's birthday, but it uh, it didn't mean the party the party was going to stop. <laughs> no, the part the party kept on going, and I would have loved to have stayed a little longer, but I did get my beer in while I was trying to stop bleeding. Um, I did get a beer in, uh, which was, I think, which really helped me out a lot. Um, my wife, uh, drove me home and, um, that beer put me out. Um, it takes like, you know, probably about 50 minutes or something to get home from your mom's place. And I think I was asleep for a good chunk of that. So that was nice. Nice. And then, um, when I got, came in the house and went to the bathroom, decided to, you know, touch up on the band-aids and stuff. I mean, my, my knee was still bleeding. There was blood coming down from my knee all the way Ugh. down. It's like, that's how bad it was. The band-aids were soaked. And like, oh, my God, are you kidding? What a mess. You're, you're a trooper, but, Jens, and you, you keep on pushing, so. <laughs> well, I'm not squeamish, so I'm okay. 
yeah. I was just like, you know what? I um, don't have any bones poking out, so uh, I think things are good. Uh, my, uh, I didn't tell you this past weekend, related to my injury, um, I was telling my brother-in-law who had come over um, to do some social distancing, like a social distancing picnic for us. Uh, I, I was telling him the story about how I had fallen over and you know, I showed him all my scabs and you know where it was bleeding and I was all proud of myself for surviving my big war wound at this really dangerous 10 year old birthday party you know right and uh, he was laughing at me because then he started telling me about his childhood and he grew up um, in the middle of nowhere like he grew up in the Philippines in this little tiny little town um, next to the South China Sea and literally nowhere there's no like there's no little local, you know, clinic there back then that was was open. But he would just tell me back in the day when he was a kid, um, he got his knees scraped. You know, his friends got his knees scraped. That's just how they were. You know, just like kind of what you know boys are like here. Yeah. You know, rough and tumble play and fun. But but they never actually had a concept of like disinfecting wounds. Oh, so they just or let it go. Putting band aids yeah. on anything. And he was telling me about like how his wounds started smelling and mm. like festering and pussing. And I'm looking at him thinking, "There's solutions you for that." Abscess? Are you freaking serious? You're running around like a little kid with abscesses. Yeah. You know, people lose their limbs because of that shit. Yeah, you gotta take care of yourself. <laughs> I was like, yeah. mind blown. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> He's alive and well. Well, let's oh, let's get into Shirley awesome. King here, Jens. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. sorry, I got a little morbid there. Um, yeah. Should we bring on our guest? We should, we should. But uh, I want to play a song off her uh, new album that she she has. That's called uh, "Blues for a King," and um, and this is a cover song that she did uh, of Edward James uh, at last. And she we we talk about it a little bit and how she's a fan of uh, Evetta, but. Really listen to the interview for uh, how raw and how honest uh, she is because there, she gets into a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that's pretty, others would think is pretty personal and um, and isn't afraid to share it. So um, we're going to uh, play that song and then go ahead and bring in uh, Shirley King. Here it is. Beautiful.
Hey, Shirley, how you doing? Hello. I'm blessed. How are you, Mr. Johnson? Yeah, this is Steve Jones from Concert Pipeline. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. How's, how's your day going so far? Oh, it's going beautiful. I just got through talking about my dad, and that always makes my day. Now I'm ready to talk about him some more. We'll just keep on talking, ready? right? <laughs> That's right. You, I hope you're ready for me, because I'm ready for you, like... Oh. Like the record say, I hope you're ready for me. Oh, I am. I am ready. Yes, uh, you're bringing the energy, and I love it. So it's a great way to start off. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, obviously, yeah, we'll talk about your dad a little bit. I mean, uh, a good amount, but uh, but I do want to talk about you as well. And uh, and I mean, I want to start out by really asking how you're doing in this time right now that is really you know unprecedented and so much is changing. Like, how are you holding up with everything? You know, I'm so thankful that I had B.B. King for a father because only thing that matters to him is getting to the next show and keeping people happy. And right about now, I keep feeling the same way. They need me out here uh, going to all these different places, doing some music. I'll calm these people down because I'm going to tell you one thing. The more people are fighting and, and using hate language and everything, Things are never, you know, people got to feel love, and ain't no love happening no more, so I've decided to go the other way. I did a Facebook Live, I stood out in the backyard, I told people how peaceful I was, I'm sitting in my own backyard, I ain't bothering nobody, and I'm going to pray for the people that want to make wars, and I'm going to try to reach the people and love them that want to be peace. I don't see all this being helpful to us with something that's killing us that we can't see. So if we're going through all this with something, uh, with this uh, virus that we can't see that's killing us, and then we are killing each other and fighting with trying to change something, you know, it's going to cause a lot of death. And I need these people to be around when I start back to tour. So I'm yeah. praying for this thing to ease up, but I try not to focus on that. I am so happy about this CD. I just totally been wrapped up in planning the tour because I know God is in control. And when I'm looking forward to doing something that's going to bring joy and happiness to people, I don't concentrate a lot on all the bad things that's going on. I wasn't raised that way. I was raised by my father and some of his very religious family members. And they always told us, no matter what your eyes see, God is in control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so let's go back. Uh, we'll start at the beginning for uh, for you, if that's okay. Um, so you okay? You started singing when you were a kid in church choir, right? Actually, I started singing as a little girl because when I would go out somewhere and see my father, I would go home and try to uh, get in the mirror and try to do what I saw them doing. So I actually, you know, being around my dad, seeing that all the time. I just, you know, really picked it up by watching him. And then when I was about mm, about 10 or 11, they allowed me to get in the church choir. And I always was the showman at the church. So, and then everybody knew I was B.B. King daughter and everybody expected me to sing. So anywhere I went, when my mama would dress me and take me somewhere, that's B.B. King daughter, sing me a song. I heard that all my life. And I was very smart as a young girl because when they tell me to sing, I put my hand out so they can give me some money because I realized if I'm going to work, pay me. So I, I really just started singing as a little girl 
But then when I got in church, you know, in a choir, they teach you your parts and blah, 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 blah. And I did that in church. But when I came to Chicago is really when I picked up on the blues and started doing my blues stuff. I didn't go out to be a blues singer. I would have probably ended up being a gospel singer if I had a follow the format. But uh, in Chicago, you can't be here and not get the blues fever because there's nothing but blues all over the place. And back in the day when I first came here, my dad was coming here a lot. So, you know, I was seeing from Joe Tex to Lil Milton to uh, uh, all the blues people. They were right here. They all lived here. And sometimes they came from other places. And then the R&B singers started coming here. So I, I, I just was surrounded with so many blues and musical people. I got a chance to be around Walter Jackson, the Impressions. I mean, Curtis Mayfield. I mean, you know, Chicago was just filled up with, with music. So I actually came at a good time to be around all kind of music. I even was on the stage as a dancer when the Jackson 5 was trying to become famous. They was the opening act yeah. with Tyrone Davis. So, I mean, it was nothing but music here. You had one way to go. Go one way in music or either just go and watch music. You know, you could either be part of the music or you can go and watch the music. Yeah, and so, uh, I mean, moving towards blues in general, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't natural for you. You actually pushed back against that, uh, you know, at, at first, oh, yeah. right? Because it kind of took you away from your dad, right? Right. I... I I hated the blues because it was the thing that kept me and my dad apart. Uh, I really didn't let go and, and found a way to embrace blues until I got a little bit older. I stopped dancing. I would have had to go and get a job if I didn't start doing something. And my dad told me it was up to me. He didn't push me to sing the blues because he was singing it. He told me, don't do it if I didn't feel it because it wouldn't be a a great success if I didn't do it because I want to do it, not because he was doing it. So hearing that and then hanging out, seeing how people were having so much fun doing the blues and how you never had to really be famous. You know, you didn't have to have a record out or nothing like that. You could be famous just singing and letting your feeling go out there. And my girlfriend started married my boyfriend, my only first boyfriend. So I think that's when I got the blues and I was able to really project there because, you know, it takes something to slap you upside the head where you can really lay a blues song down, right? Yeah. And uh, I think that's when I really got the blues. I didn't know it, but after I stopped dancing, after my kids grew up and I didn't have to worry about, you know, being with them because they were young, because as a blues artist, I would have had to do to my kids what my dad did to his kids. And I didn't want to do that. So I stayed away from the blues and kept dancing for 21 years. And after I stopped dancing, I, you know, uh, I needed something else to do in the show business. And I'm glad I did it because, I mean, I wasn't in it a year before I had a CD out. I was touring all over Iceland and, and going all kind of places, things that you dream of doing and you have to save up money for. I was able to do it at somebody's expense and get paid doing it. Not a bad so deal. It was a, it was a great idea. Yeah, and uh, how many siblings do you have, Shirley? My dad uh, 
actually embraced 14 other kids, and he started calling his kids. He didn't do the DNA on them because the way they fight now, I wish he had them. But uh, he actually, you know, opened his arms up and accepted 15 of us and 15 mothers. So there's a total of 14 others than myself. And then my mama had six other kids. So I'm from a total of 20-some people, and I'm not connected to either side, my mother or my father. Wow. Okay. And so, uh, I mean, how how many of them are musically inclined? Do you know? Do you have you been able to uh, keep in touch with any I of mean, them? I mean, I know them. I yeah. know them. My father tried to bring us together, but out of jealousy, and most of them kind of wasn't happy with me being the only one that had been raised by my father. So one of the sisters is slowly trying to get back in now. She's trying to talk to me, but actually. Uh, one sister younger than my, supposed to be the baby sister, she uh, ran out after my daddy died and started trying to be famous in the business. And I had another sister that wanted to get into it because they had no other way of getting recognition since daddy had passed. So it's actually one that's trying to, you know, be famous out there with the B.B. King band. And then another sister, she's doing her own thing. And another sister that could sing her butt off, but she won't do it, you know. So there are other people in the family that uh, I have a niece that after my dad died, she came out and started trying to sing the blues. So people are slowly coming out doing it because they need the recognition. But if my dad was still around, he would tell them, don't do that because of me. You do it because it's something you want to do and you love because that's the only way you're going to be successful at it. You're not going to be successful just because you can sing because blues entertainment is more than you being just a singer. If you uh, know in it, if you know, did a little research, most blues people cannot get down and sing, but they work all the time because some kind of way it filtrates into a, performance and when you are blues artist your biggest uh, biggest thing is not going out there being the greatest singer it's what you bring to the audience that they will accept you know I don't know a whole lot of blues singers that are get down singers I don't know too many uh, people that they playing the guitar and singing or maybe singing and got other things on the side going on on the stage that's how they, you know, stay alive. Coco Teller was known for her growl, you know, and she would move every now and then, but, you know, she was considered from what she could do with her voice. So I think blues is one of those basic things that, you know, when you do it from the soul and you reach people, you become just as famous as people let you be. And it's not you. It's your fan that keeps you famous or make you famous or like what you do. I always hear that people, they always walk up to me and they never tell me how great a singer I am, but they all will agree and say they love my voice. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but right about now, I don't care because people loving my voice have kept me working for 29 years. So whatever I had to use to work, I'm happy to have it. Hey, that works, right? So it's good. That works. (laughs) so uh, you you'd mentioned your first album, putting together your first album. That was Jump Through My Keyhole, right? Actually, I didn't put it together. Uh, are you familiar with Jimmy Dotson? 
Uh, no, not they really. Him, yeah, they used to call him Fast Fingers. Well, he was one of the established blues musicians here in Chicago. And when he met me, uh, he knew my dad already. When he met me, he just kind of pulled me in with his band. And they got together with this guy named uh, Chicago Bo. They got together and got this Japanese record label uh, to produce a CD on me. And I wasn't, I was so new at it, I just had to do everything they told me to do. So they created the song, they put the band together, and they had me to do a real, real traditional blues album called Jump Through My Keyhole. And I have no connection where that CD is at right now because uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a G GBW. A label out of Japan, and all of a sudden the CD doesn't exist anymore. I guess they waiting for me to die, and then when I die, it will pop back up out here. Oh no! <laughs> Hopefully sooner than that, right? Um, well, that is the way things happen sometimes. You know, blues people don't always get chance to enjoy their work. It's enjoyed more after they leave this earth. You know, we're just being real now. We just coming down and being in reality. Blues people are more famous after they pass than they are while they live it. And that's kind of like when people were saying, you know, why you wait so long? Because a lot of time they don't move you into a good blues position till you get a certain age. You know, the older you are, the more they want to patronize, the more they want to make you somebody because after a while you'll be dead and everybody that was working for you can now live on what you did. You know, and if you don't have your family involved in that, then you might lose completely because your family wasn't around to help you become who you became, which is why my family is still fighting over my daddy's stuff. They wasn't involved with my daddy's business. So when my dad passed, you know, all the lawyers and all the people that that's controlling anything about my dad, they're the ones prepared to make money off of who my dad was, you know. They're not considering us because he said we were his kids. They're doing the business as it started out. It didn't start out with B.B. King's kids. It started out with B.B. King doing his own business, and his kids was the personal part of his life, and the business was another side of his life. Yeah. So I understand that. That's why I'm trying to make a name. So I have two kids. I have three grandkids, and I have a great-grandson. I would like to be able to leave a legacy for my little small family so they don't have to fight over what I leave behind. And if I'm doing it in divine order now, they won't have to go through what I'm going through with my brothers and sisters over my father's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so um, you uh, you created an album um in 90 i think it was around 99 uh daughter of the blues and that kind of stuck as your 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 persona after that right well actually what happened i met a young lady that just admired my show she admired my singing she just thought i should be out here and she had nice money she had a lot of money so she took me in the studio and she knew Ella Jane was my idol she took me in the studio and let me record it Everybody's songs. I think I got one original on there, Aggravation. That's my own song. But all the rest of them were people that I idolized. And she let me did all that in the studio with a band and everything. And then she set up a label for it called Diva Records. Well, when we didn't quite stay together, she put it out there in 600 radio stations. And when we weren't 
back together no more. She took it off of 600 radio stations. Oof. So that CD actually was a lot of money spent on it, but it didn't actually benefit me because the person that recorded took back control of it. So that CD kind of like was done, but it never brought me recognition because it didn't, you know, stay out there. It went out to 600 radio stations. She had that kind of money. And then when we didn't have another relationship, she made sure it came back off and all the CDs just went in the closet. Yeah. And um, and so uh, did you did you write a book uh, called Love is King? I did. I, actually, I co-wrote that with an uh, author named David Smitherman. He uh, actually uh, was there listening to what I had to say and we so we both on the book as authors. We're, you know, his name and my name is on there. But it all had to do with what was going on after my daddy got sick and was passing. That book was not a true uh, book about Shirley King's life as B.B. King's daughter. The new book I'm getting ready to write is going to be self-published because now I can afford to do my own book. I can get people to help me where I will have control of that book. And I'm getting ready to write my real story. I mean, from, you know, from what I can remember from the time I was three years old, right up until the end when I saw my dad go down on this on the stage here in Chicago at the House of Blues October the 3rd. I was sitting right there in the audience in the uh, VIP section right up over his head where I could have jumped down on that stage and saved him. But that didn't happen that night because people immediately started fighting over what was going to be left behind that B.B. King had that people could take from the family. And that fight has not stopped. It's still going on. So that's what that book was about. It was more about me fighting for my daddy's legacy and trying to, you know, keep the respect he had when he was here living because you never heard a scandal on B.B. King. You never heard anybody suing him. You never heard any... I mean, it was like he was this perfect person. No one's got a bad thing to say, yeah. But he didn't, you know, like getting involved with messy situations. He always kept it where people only knew the respectful part of B.B. King. And when he got sick, it got so disrespectful uh, until, you know, you're trying to scratch your head and figure out, wait a minute, I never heard this about Mr. King. Some people were saying, he got 15 babies by 15 mamas. B.B. King might have been the king of the blues, but he was a, a whore. I mean, when I read that on Facebook, I cried. I cried all night long because I know that is something that my father would have been so hurt to hear. And I think he would have been, you know, he's never tried to hide the fact that he decided to say I have 15 kids, but no DNA was done because if DNA was done, it wouldn't be like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But my father didn't want that to be proven. He decided, I grew up with no brothers and sisters. I want to leave a family. I want to have a family. I want to have a big family. I want to have people carrying on my name and my legacy. And my dad worked so hard to make that happen. But in the end, when he couldn't fight for himself no more, people just totally went in and just disrespect you know, just totally disrespect. The B.B. King Club is suing the B.B. King estate. Two of B.B. King band members were suing B.B. King estate. I mean, it's just like, what are you guys doing? Somebody had a, a picture that they took 40-some years ago. They went in and sued him because 
university youth. I mean, I could not believe all the things that went to coming towards my dad when he got sick and couldn't fight for himself no more. I couldn't. And I've been five years on Facebook Live just trying to keep B.B. King's respect and legacy alive. I've been crying that for five and a half years on Facebook Live. I mean, I really, that was my only uh, platform to talk about my dad every day. And I've kept many people happy talking about my dad and giving him his respect. And so this CD right here will help me so much because when I'm on stage, I can present myself and say the things to people that I've been saying on Facebook about how proud I am of my dad and what kind of person he was and who he was and, you know, what people already know. Everybody already respects him and everybody almost loves the heck out of him. So I don't have a whole lot to do. All I got to do is just keep myself in a respectful place where people will be able to compare me to my dad because they didn't see my dad out there talking about nobody on stage. You didn't see him out there uh, putting his personal business in the street. He didn't mistreat none of the women that he got all these 14 babies by. They were able to still come and see him and get money until he left this earth. So my dad just decided to be this perfect person. And I really hate that the world is not, you know, you, you you hear about Michael Jackson's big celebration every year since he's been gone. Not once have they really did anything tremendously to recognize my dad since he's been gone, except I got Google to do this big old thing, and that's probably the biggest thing that's been happened honoring my dad since he left this earth because people are still busy suing and fighting over his stuff that he left behind. They they had an auction. They sold off his stuff. They got a house shut down with his stuff in there. People don't know what I'm going through. So I'm glad to have this CD because it's taking my mind to another place. It's helping me live in the shadow of the legacy, not be with people that's fighting over his stuff because, you know, if I close my eyes today or tomorrow, what I have, People going to fight over that. You know, that's just the way the world is. Everybody, when you die, they might not even pay you no attention, but let you let death come. Yeah, they going to come looking for what, you, what they leave me, what I got. And I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person that will keep the same legacy of respect that my dad had when he was here on earth. Nobody ever thought bad of anything of B.B. King when he was here on earth. And everybody that I talk to, they still keep him in uh, high respect. They love him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he definitely left his, you know, legacy here. And, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that you're able to kind of continue that on. And, and so tell me a little bit about uh, Blues for a King. Like you, you brought a lot of people in to make this album with you, a lot of great musicians. And so tell me about that process for you. You know what? I actually would like to take that credit, but I cannot. I'm a very honest person, and I don't try to take credit for something I didn't do. That was totally uh, done by John suggesting to Cleopatra's Records, and Cleopatra's Records and the team, their record team, got together, and they created this whole thing. I did not even know those guitar players were going to be on the CD because if I had a did this, I don't have that kind of connection. You know, I, I wouldn't have had a way of getting the type of guitar players that's on there. I wouldn't have had that. 
So this was a total plan between John Lapton and Cleopatra Records, and then Bryant and Cleopatra Records and the whole team started working for Shirley King. They gave me these songs that I was like, oh, Lord, this is not blues. I'm not going to sing this. And then I thought about all that money they was paying me, <laughs> paying me to do the album, and I shut up. I did the best I could, you know, because they were songs that I would never pick for myself. I mean, uh, whooping pole, no, and come on, I, I, I mean, I've heard those songs. I don't know if I heard all of them. I didn't pay no attention until they sent me a track to sing them, and I thought, oh my God, this is old music and this northern soul songs, you know, the old Motown sounding stuff. I mean, I really wanted to back up and john said just you know just sing it the best you can do what you can and we're gonna get it back to la and we'll take it from there and when they finally let revealed to me what they had did i was just blown away because first of all to have the legendary guitarist on this cd it probably will be talked about for years and years then the other thing they said okay we're gonna even put this on vinyl Oh my God, what? You know, so it was totally Cleopatra's record. Shirley King had nothing to do with it. All she did was song because they paid her. Probably if they hadn't paid me, I probably would have flat out said no, you know. But what? it was all Cleopatra uh, between John Lapson and Cleopatra's record. But you got to close it out. I mean, the album closes out with uh, At Last, you know, which you're, I mean, I know you're a big fan of Etta James, and you have been since, yeah. you, since you were a little girl, so that must have been pretty cool to kind of incorporate some of that uh, into the album, right? The whole thing was cool because I didn't see it when they first presented it to me. But what made me shut up is that they had paid me. You know, they were going to pay me. So in order to make some money... It's like hired for a singer, hired for a job. That's how it became. You know, I started looking at it for... But then when they told me to do it last, because I had been requested at some of my shows to do that song, people just felt I had the right voice for that, and I would turn it down every time. I never did that song on stage. I did I Rather Go Blind a little bit, and I did on the 2000 CD, I did Tell Mama... But a ballot, that ballot, I flat out would just say no. So when they were telling me to do that, I did not want to do it. Because I don't feel like nobody should mess with Etta James at last. I don't care who it is. I only can hear Etta James singing at last. But I did the best I could. And then when I heard, I was like, John, I don't like the way I sound on it. He said, Shirley, some people really like thought you did a good job. And it took that little bit of him saying that to me to help me because I know what I thought I should have did, but I didn't do it. And when they got through with it, I thought it was going to be mixed a certain way. But, you know, they're getting some attention off it. So I'm, and the fact that that's my hero that I'm, you know, giving honors to, you know, I thought they was going to have me and my dad on there singing together, but I guess that didn't work for them. So they put me on there with Junior Wells, and oh my God, I, I feel like jumping and shouting. I mean, because Junior Wells was somebody I saw in Chicago, but I never got a chance to sit in with him or do anything. I just had saw him on stage. So when they told me they were going to put me on a duet with Junior Wells, 
I'm scratching my head like, wait a minute, ain't Junior Well dead? <laughs> <laughs> I don't sing with Junior Well. I ain't going to die just to sing with Junior Well. Right. But then when, you know, when I heard it, to me, that song, to me, is my favorite. That on that CD, that's the favorite. But then uh, found my way back home, and another one in songs is, is like overpowering me because of the words, the meaning to find my way back home. That's what I feel like I'm doing, you know, trying to find my way back in. Because for five years since my father been gone, I haven't been doing that good because there's been a fight going on and people suing the B.B. King estate and different family members trying to be involved. It's just been so tacky. So now that song hit me at home because I'm coming down off of my throne and I'm finding my way back home. Now, like I said, I have the favorite song is Junior Well because it, it sounds so live and it sounds close to me doing blues. But for what they got, the other songs that they got me singing, I feel honored because these are songs that I never would have picked for myself. But I'm glad I did what they told me to do. Yeah, and you have Joe Lewis Walker on a couple of tracks too, and uh, I'm going to be talking to him on Monday um, also. Uh, so I'm going to ask him, you know, about uh, working on your album too when I, when I do. So I mean, pretty cool lineup uh, of uh, of musicians, like you said. Let me let me just say this quick thing about Joe Lewis. I had never met him, and I I've heard of the name, but I never, you know, some people in the blues thing, you don't totally pay attention to it because, you know, he wasn't in Chicago being a, a consistent blues singer. I had heard a little bit, but I, I knew he had did some things with my father, but I didn't have a connection with him. The blues people that I had a connection with didn't pay me no attention when my dad died. He was the only one got on the phone and called me and said, are you all right? He said, are you all right? And we talked a little bit. And then he tried to connect me with the person that was working with him to try to, you know, maybe bring me out to do something and everything, and that didn't work. And that's just to show you how God, whatever's meant to happen, it will happen. All of a sudden, I get the Cleopatra record, and his name pops up again. I'm like, okay. But he did call me and act like he was my daddy's friend. And when they told me that he was going to be uh, playing on the CD, I just thought, how awesome is that? Because he did try to help me get some bookings uh, before this CD came out. So I can see that we might be doing some things. I might, you know, really be doing more with him than anybody that's on that CD. Because he did, like I say, reached out and tried to put me with his booking agent when my father had passed. Well, well, that's good that you could build that relationship uh, through through that as well. We we interviewed him like four years ago too, and I I remember he had these really great uh, like alligator skin boots. It was uh, it was so so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember having some alligator purses and shoes. My daddy, he was a sharp dresser, and when I was growing up, he used to love to dress me and my cousin up. My cousin was the player Walter King that played in his band and he kind of treated us like we were his two kids because he didn't have the other kids you know around him and he kind of made it like we was his two kids and I'm so proud of that picture where me and my cousin standing there with my dad and he holding me because he always looked out for me and he always made sure I was all right all my life 
So I'm really honored. That's one of my favorite pictures that I will probably pop up on stage. I'm going to have some things that's going to help people not just listen to me do a show, but to, to, to bring that, that love that they knew B.B. King had to show them that you don't have to ask that question no more. You don't have to ask me how did it feel to be B.B. King's daughter because it's all going to be in picture work behind me as I perform. That's how I want my stage set up every night. Oh, that is so cool. Um, so a couple of things as we kind of wind down. You had mentioned you're, you're working on another book. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on there? Well, it's actually going to be all these interviews I'm doing. I'm pretty much sharing my book with y'all right now. I'm, I'm hoping I can get hold to all these interviews I'm doing because that'll help me write my book because I'm able to really let go and talk about Shirley King growing up through each interview that I've done. I did six so far and each one of them I've heard myself and I tried to record while I was talking because that's how I'm gonna have to go and get this book done but the thing is is that I'm sharing information to the point where people didn't know that some of the things that I'm telling you everybody don't know that some of the things I said to the other interviewers you know I probably didn't get a chance to say it to you or either I said it to them and didn't have enough time. In other words, the whole interview circuit is something I can collect and write my book from because I'm definitely talking about little things my dad said to me, little things my dad had taught me, little things that happened in my life, little things that's happening good and bad. I'm actually doing that in every interview. I'm emptying out my soul in every interview. So let's let's talk about that. So what what would you say are are is either like the biggest lesson or what some of the biggest lessons that you're you uh, take you took away from your dad? It's so many. I mean, you know, it wasn't just no one thing. I can tell I can tell you something that might would make you laugh, and I love making people laugh. I, I like laughing. <laughs> I like to keep you happy. Yeah. But uh, uh, let's say teaching me a stage etiquette—that's one thing that people don't take for granted that's important but that's very important you know the dressing the way you act on stage and how you treat your audience all those are things that everybody don't have and so my father wanted me to be the best performer on stage with all the things that go with it so he never allowed to see me come in looking all tacky or dressed the wrong way. You know, he thought for a blues woman, be classy. Because that's all he had around him when he first started out. You know, the women dressed really nice. Everybody cared. They said you would never see nobody with jeans and gym shoes. You know, and my dad kept it that way. So he would always, you know, make sure. And he was always happy that I learned that because every time I went around him, I was dressed to kill and the other thing was, you know, coming on the stage, one time he uh, brought me on the stage with him. And he didn't do that too often because he would always say, well, this is not a jam. So when people are paying to see B.B. King, I don't turn my show into a jam because they paid a lot of money to come see me. And that wasn't being arrogant. What he was teaching me, sometimes you can't have people jumping up on the stage with you when people done paid a lot of money to come see you. They didn't come to see somebody jam with you. And every now and then, on occasion, you know, he would call me just to see how much I had learned or, you know, see how I was carrying myself. And uh, one time he called me on there and I got so excited 
I didn't really know what to do because people had told me how intimidating it was to go on the stage with B.B. King, and I didn't believe him because I'm like, he ain't, he's just a blues singer. What's intimidated about it? Well, he called me on stage, and I ran up there, and I just went loose. I, hey, y'all, get up. Come on, let's party. And my dad was playing Lucille. He stopped playing a little bit and looked upside my head like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm doing Shirley King. Uh, but this is not Shirley King's show. This is B.B. King's show. And I brought you out here to introduce you, and I was letting you do something. And so what you were supposed to do is ease into to what I was already doing. You came out here and tried to take over. Very valuable lesson because... I never saw anybody go out on the stage and run ahead of B.B. when he would allow you to come on that stage. He didn't do it very often. But when he did allow, it was set up in a very respectful way. And I didn't know that, you know, because I'm used to being in Chicago where you just jump up there and jam with somebody. But that was the class of my dad. He wanted me to have the same class. He wanted me to understand to respect the stage and, number one, respect your audience because if you keep your audience happy and they, and they love you you can live the rest of your life off of who you are and I saw him do it so I always every time there's different things I always pop up and say my daddy told me this and my dad it's like I'm a little kid even though I'm 70 years old sometimes I feel like a little kid doing what I didn't get a chance to do with a daddy that's how I feel now. And my son, the son, is my spirit connection to my dad. So I get up and go on Facebook every morning. I either take a picture of the son and say, there my dad is, y'all. And sometimes I'll just sit quietly, and he still comes and tries to let me know, keep on doing the good job. He, you know, he, 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 he shares a spiritual thing with me now. And I tell people, now you got one. You got Shirley and B.B. King together when i come on that stage you are going to see similarities because that's where i learned it from everything i know about the stage i learned it from my father yeah and and so uh looking at the other perspective ha having gone to a number of your dad's shows of course what what's one of the most touching memorable things that so, uh, a fan has told you you know about how uh, your dad's music impact them Wait a minute, I'm sorry. Say that one more time. I did broke up. Yeah, no worries. I'm uh, I'm wondering if uh, th there's a, something memorable that a fan of your your dad's uh, told you about how his music uh, impacted them personally that you can remember. Well, one thing, uh, and many people know this. Many people know this. My dad was not a bragger on himself. He he, you know, and I learned through him. It is so much better when somebody says something about you compared to you opening your mouth saying it about yourself because, you know, that comes off as you bragging, but did somebody else feel the same way? So I never really heard him. If you come in there and I've been sitting in the dressing room with him when people say, BB, you BB, you know, BB. He said, well, you know, I do the best I could. I don't know as much as I should know. And uh, if I could play like some of the young bucks and everything, he would throw it on somebody else. If he needed to brag, he would make sure it go to somebody else so he didn't have to be the bragger. So that was to me, quality learning. And sometimes I put stuff on my Facebook and somebody might come back at me and say, I said, 
tell the person that said, I just copy and paste what somebody put on there about me. I don't need to brag. I got people that brag on me. And my father left it the same way. He would love it when people was in there stroking him, but he would not open his mouth and brag on himself. I've never seen him do it, ever. You know, he would always find a way to uh, be humble enough to understand that there was somebody better. Maybe there was somebody that did something that he couldn't do, but he didn't hate them for that because everybody came out here being who they were. Nobody came out here to be identical to nobody. You know, many people will try to play like Muddy Water, but they will never be Muddy Water. Many people will try to play like B.B. King. That won't happen. Nope. But I am, looking, I am looking at somebody that's touching my heart, his persona, his spirit is it, it, touching me that this young man, I met him and, and took him out on the road, but he was with Jane Cotton when I uh, took him out. They was off for a while because Jane had got sick. But Slam Allen, I really, when I first heard him, I was like, I would like to do something with that guy. And so I've already introduced him to uh, Cleopatra Record. If you get a chance, Google search Slam Allen. He is phenomenal and he's young he was born in 66 september the 6th so his birthday is uh 10 days before my uh after my 10 days before my dad but he is so phenomenal and i'm working on trying to do a song with him because then i feel like i can reach into his spirit and bring out some of my dad one of my dad's old songs you know the bb king from the 50s and 60s because my dad was singing different in the 60s compared, I mean the 50s, compared to where he went to after all the famous people started being with him on music. You know, he had a different style. And I want to do that with somebody. And I think he's going to be the one. So I'm working, I got a few ideas in my head to come back and not wait 20 years to do something there. Yeah, for sure. And and so I, I did want to also ask you, Shirley, about uh, Urban Gateway's uh, arts and kind of tell me, I mean, as we're talking about your dad's legacy, I mean, that's one platform you've used to be able to uh, spread blues and spread your dad's, you know, uh, legacy to a younger audience, right? Oh, my God, that worked so good for me. That went so good for me. What happened is that that was something Billy Branch was doing. He still occasionally does it, but he was the uh, guy with Urban Gateway doing the blues part of the show. And because they were playing in blues clubs at night and, you know, getting a little toasted, and early in the morning they had to be at the school to perform, and that kind of, you know, made them say, well, you know, we don't want that, that exposed. So I got a chance to sneak right on up in that little spot to be an urban gateway performer for about three years. And within that three years of being with Urban Gateway, I must have did about 200 and some schools because people that didn't like the blues assembly or program, you know, especially the kids, they wouldn't, you know, show up and support the uh, assembly and everything. As soon as they said B.B. King's daughter, these kids started liking me, and some of them was thinking that my dad was going to come in there with me. And here we are thinking that the kids don't know nothing about B.B. King. Boy, them kids would show up, and they would pile up in there. But then I would go up in there and present the Chicago-style blues. I would go in there doing a Robert Johnson song. Then I would do Chicago 
type mojo working and all that. And the kids started loving it because I didn't go in there being depressed. I went in there very happy showing them how to have fun with the blues. And I think I must have generated the biggest blues followers because people that they couldn't get their parents to come to school for different assemblies and programs, parents started showing up. Because they, you know, some kind of way was thinking B.B. King was going to show up. And that got me a lot of attention for a long time at Urban Gateway. But I had to leave because that program was up on the uh, financial thing where you know, they could only charge so much uh, for your show. And when they started trying to book me, I was getting underpaid for what I, you know, did. So I had to cut that loose. But that was one of my greatest, uh, I would say my greatest connection. And then what happened, a young lady went to the show with me and watched me do a blues in the program and went and created a whole blues, a whole blues, uh, book i have a book out called blues in the school i have a whole book showing you how to set up the assembly showing the kids how to be a good audience showing the kids how to make instruments showing the kids how to write a blues a review it's a whole book i have a i think it's about 60 or 70 pages in that book and it's called jump and jive and it talks only about bb king and book of white that is so cool that's that's really cool, yeah. and it's it's great that you've been able to you know uh, pass that legacy on to touch you know young lives and really help educate them about the blues because uh, you know I think something you said and uh, um, something else that I read of your uh, yours is that you know um, you know blues isn't something that you know a lot of young audiences you know, often come around to so getting to kind of expose them to that um, you know, early is, I mean, it's, it's an important piece of music, right? I mean, obviously when you're a kid, there's, there's not always a lot of blues material that you have to, to kind of dip into, but you can, uh, you can appreciate the music and the art form and, uh, and know kind of the, the history of it. And I mean, and just kind of having that experience, I'm sure is great. So. But you know, what it is, is that the Afro-American kids, don't like the blues because their parents don't like the blues. Their grandmother might have liked it because they would come to me and say, my grandma likes the blues and blah, blah, blah. My grandma know your daddy, blah, blah, blah. So what it is with us, Afro-American people feel like they live the blues. They don't, but any white school, these kids bring in their guitars. They want to get up and jam with me. In fact, on that CD uh, that was released, Daughter of the Blues, uh, 2000, uh, a high school jazz band uh, started being the opening act for me because they started out with a, a big headline and was using me for an opening act. And the people started showing up to see my concert, so they got rid of the high-paying money opening act and brought me in as the opening act. And then I said, well, why don't we let the jazz band be my opening act? That'll help draw more parents and more friends of theirs out to these uh, events they were doing. And we did that about three times, and these kids all thought they were, became blues musicians. They came on my CD, and the lady that was letting me record that allowed me to bring them on to do three songs, and they arranged the stuff. They played... Uh, if you get hold to that CD and listen to it, I, I got it. I got a copy of it. You will hear these kids playing uh, Every Day I Have the Blues, 
they did the Thriller's Gun. They did another one by my dad. But they they arranged the arrangements. So I'm doing uh, Every Day I Have the Blues, like some big band is playing behind me. That it's a high school band. Kids. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing Urban Gateway. Well, if that if that isn't good in the in the role experience, I don't know what is, right? <laughs> oh. That's right. Cause when I, when the album started playing and people would hear it, they like, how did you get an orchestra to play with you? And I'm like, hey, going to the right school with the band, they were the top band here in Illinois that played on that album with me, and they started getting attention from doing that because it sounded so good. And I will always remember that if you go to these kids, and three of them went out and changed their music and became blues players. I ran into one of them not too long ago. He just killing it doing blues now. I mean, they changed from doing jazz because they thought jazz and blues were the same thing. From me going into that school and introducing these kids, they decided to be blues artists. And two or three of them I done ran into since I've been older and they don't got a little old. And when they told me who they were, I was like, when did they say, after we heard you do the blues, we wanted to become blues musicians. So I, you know, and I keep all my letters. I got letters I was reading the other day where the kids wrote me about coming to the assembly and how much fun they had. Those are things that I keep. And sometimes when I feel at my lowest, I read that. Because you always need to know that you left something behind that benefits somebody other than yourself. You know, there's a, a song that we sing, I'm living my life so my life will not be lived in vain. If you don't leave nothing behind, you're living in vain. Your life is not worth nothing if you can't leave something that people say they embrace from you and it brought them to a reality of what that's why i'm respecting some of these young kids out here um mixed in and marching together and wanting to change things because they don't know what older people know they ain't experienced no slavery i'm 70 years old i didn't experience it but i bet you my dad might have experienced a little of it but you never even heard him talk about it so what we are trying to do is, well, what I'm trying to do, I can't speak for nobody but myself, but what I'm trying to do, I want some kid to pop up and say, I went and saw Shirley King sing the blues, and now I'm singing the blues. And and maybe if I'm in a wheelchair and can't walk and they find me and push me out there on the stage, I'm going to let the world know this is what I did doing what I learned from my daddy. Even though my dad couldn't come in there. And after a while, I guess they started feeling a little jealous because they started taking my dad in to do uh, educational stuff at the universities in Boston and everything. After they saw my blues in the school working, I know in the thing, B.B. King was doing some blues teaching. And he told me out of his own mouth, he said, you are very good with what you do. He said, because... You know, I talk a little bit and everything, he said, but that's not my forte of going in, you know, talking uh, about what I do because I just do it. So everybody, you know, like I said, don't want to go and work with kids doing that. But if everybody knew like I knew, if everybody know like I know, it would be so wonderful for a kid to grow up and meet up with you later and get up and jam with you because of what you taught them or what they learned from seeing you do it. And I see it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and surely, I mean, it's, 
Uh, I mean, it, it, I can tell through our conversation that it's not something that you take for granted, you know, having uh, been the daughter of, you know, a, a legend like B.B. King. And uh, and I'm glad that, you know, even though uh, it uh, it took some doing to get you uh, to do th- uh, this most recent album, you know, it uh, it is really great. And I'm glad you were able to kind of uh, pull together your piece of it because, I mean, partnered with uh, other great musicians on the album. I mean, it it really has a, a powerful feel to it. So I'm, I'm glad you were able to, right. to make that happen. You're right. And I don't take that for granted. I thank God every day that <laughs> this doesn't happen. I get up in the morning and I just say, I must have did something right because I'm being so blessed. And the fact that uh, knowing that I did this before I left the earth, because when I turned 69, that was about the same time my father really went to making a big name for himself. He had been working, he had been touring, he had been doing a lot of things, but he did not make it big till he was 69 years old. And he got 20 years of benefiting from what somebody saw in him and gave him a chance because he had worked so hard to earn it. So I feel like my life is going in the same order of my dad. Now, if I can just stay around till I'm 89, we will be to live a very similar life. You got this. I believe in you. <laughs> if I can stay here until I get 69 and be sitting on the stage and can't do it no more, then I will feel like I did exactly. I always told my dad I wish I was a boy so I could be like him. I will feel good being a, a big hipped woman that still did like him because, like I said, I'm being blessed at the exact same time that people came in and gave my daddy a different direction. He was 69 years old when he got his really, really, really big break. Yeah. Well, surely I hope you can get back up on stage soon too. You know, I know that we're all getting through this and, uh, and I'll tell you, I miss concerts. So <laughs> it's, uh, I know. I, well, they just offered me something to do July, the middle of July. And I'm not going to jump out here too quick because I'm a cancer survivor. I'm 10 years, maybe 11 years, uh, three-stage cancer survivor. And I have to be very careful. So like I said, hopefully this thing will allow me to go and do this little show. I really would like to, but if it's not safe for me, I'm not going to do it. And I had to turn down my trip over to Portugal because I was supposed to go over there in July, and they didn't do that one. Now they called me and want me to come in September, but I'm, I turned that down because I don't feel like I'm ready to go out the country right now. You, you got to be so, safe first, and you know, and and congrats on you know surviving cancer too. I mean, that's that's incredible, and you know, you're a champ to have done that. You know. Oh yeah, well, like I said, I have a lot of things to put in this book. Some of them gonna make people laugh, some of them gonna make people cry, and some of them gonna make people say, "Oh, so that's how I, that's how I feel to be BB King's daughter," because you know, like people when they went and saw that movie about Tina Turner even though some of it wasn't true or whatever. But people, you know, they gave her a greater respect because they felt like what she went through, only a real woman would have came out on the other end and still survived it, you know? So I want people to see my life the same way, even though I was B.B. King's daughter, and and it was some good days being his daughter, but there were a lot of days that wasn't so good, but I still survived it. And I guess I'll be able then to actually sometimes sing that song uh, that my dad put out on that CD called I Will Survive. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling out the good music that I might from time to time could use on the stage, like, let's all get together and bring peace to the world. He did that with uh, uh, some uh, of people that for something, a movie or something. But anyway, I plan on, since all this stuff is going on, I plan on using that. I plan on using there must be a better world somewhere. I plan on using that. So I'm looking through my dad's musical catalog to see what would fit in the times we're living in because I noticed that a lot of his music would fit now that was done in the 50s. It would fit so good right today in what's happening in the world today. Yeah, it'll really connect with where we're at now, for sure, so... Yeah. 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 So I'm working on all that, but like I said, I really appreciate you talking to me, letting me do this, because guess what? Each and every time that I have done this, I'm feeling a connection that I never felt before. Not so much as bragging about being a new recording artist, but the fact that I'm getting a chance to keep on talking about my dad. And John thought, he said, well, if they... Talk too much about your dad. You know, I said, man, are you serious? I could talk about my dad all night and day. Because when I'm talking about my dad, I'm talking about myself. So, no, I'm so honored and happy that you guys, you know, have gave me this chance. And I look forward to meeting you, giving you a big old hug. Yeah, we uh, come out to the Bay, play some shows out here. You will get together and uh, it'll be fun for sure. So. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll leave all that up to Cleopatra and to John because they got John kind of being the overseer of me since he brought me to Cleopatra's record. So I know that he's just in his seventh heaven because, you know, he he enjoyed building me up since he met me. And I think these uh, interviews that he's setting up, the more people are, you know, letting him know they want to do it, it's just making his job uh, uh, a holy God-fearing loving thing he calls and be laughing and you know he's a little active so he will kind of talk fast and slow down John. we did the interview i think the people enjoy talking to me i'm a good talker when it comes to interviewing i think i got this don't worry about it <laughs> yeah john <laughs> you know, is john is great i've so worked, I'm looking worked. forward to everything that you guys are the reviews and whatever, and I'm looking forward to John hearing that I did a good job from you all. Oh, I'd, I'd definitely send it back to him. I've worked with him for a handful of years at this point now and gotten to talk to a lot of really great people in, in the industry through him, you know. So uh, I, I really enjoyed our conversation today, Shirley, and I appreciate you taking the time. I was looking forward to it. And uh, uh, and just the energy that you brought from right out the gate was, uh, was incredible. So I love it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, and make sure you tell them that, because I already told a guy, the first interview I did, the guy was a little draggy and a little sluggish and a little, I'm like, you know, you're the first person I ever talked to, and I didn't get the, some energy back in a laugh or something, and when I got through saying that, he started laughing. I said, okay, now, that's right, that's how you have to keep me now, don't be coming like, like I'm boring, you know I'm not boring. You got to match it, right? We got to yeah. both would give that yeah, energy. He so laughing because you know I guess he was just being a real serious person interviewing, right? But that's cool. But I like to have people to know that I'm so real. I don't care about your position. I'm becoming your friend, and as I become your friend, I'm not trying to be all that serious. I want you to understand. I'm here coming behind my dad. I'm not already famous, but I'm admiring the fact of becoming the shadow of the biggest shadow that have ever been in this world, ever. 
you know, and that's, you know, that's a big shoe and a shadow to walk behind. So I'm coming out, you know, letting people know that. And when you kind of ain't happy doing this with me, I'm going to make you happy because I don't let nobody leave nowhere. I don't let nobody leave my show sad. I work all night, and if I look and see somebody in the audience acting like they ain't enjoying me, boy, I lie into them like a, a fly. <laughs> What's you, wrong with you? You, you get them. Like, well, let me shake the tip at you. <laughs> when I get through, that person following me around the whole rest of the night. Yeah, I'm just like that. So yeah. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you letting me talk about my dad and talk about the things you wanted me to talk about. And anytime you want to talk and John set it up again, I'll be ready again. Hey, I'm sure we'll chat again real soon. And yeah, and hopefully get to meet you in person uh, when, when this is through for sure. So <laughs> thank you. Sure we will. Okay. <laughs> That was the interview with Shirley King here on Concert Pipeline. And Jens, that takes us to the final segment of the program. What is it? Well, it is time for music news. That is right. Yes, we each have a couple of stories to wind out the podcast. Things are going on, and uh, we'll throw in a little commentary here and there. So, um, I'm going to start with a kind of a, a really interesting story. So, um, for the, for those that um, are familiar with the Flaming Lips, uh, the it should be no surprise really that uh, Wayne Coyne you know, finds himself in a bubble at certain points. Are you familiar with Wayne Coyne's bubble, Jens? Um, I do believe we have discussed this in the past, perhaps, although I do not remember the details. Okay, well, uh, to refresh your memory, he's uh, many times in the past, and when I saw him even like 13 years ago in San Diego, he uh, climbed inside a giant bubble and walked on the crowd. Uh, You know, the crowd supported him while he was in the giant bubble, right? Um, that is so awesome. Well, not half as awesome, Jens, is the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, How, well, I can't imagine anything being more awesome than being in a giant bubble. Well, this, you know, is we're in a time, Jens, where concerts aren't really happening. We have a podcast called Concert Pipeline. We're getting creative with with what we do, and uh, the Flaming Lips really got creative with what they do on this uh, mo- most recent performance where that they did for Co- uh, Colbert, and that is uh, the whole band was in. Uh, bubbles, including uh, two drummers inside one giant bubble. Uh, they had face masks on, uh, and uh, and each of the other band members were each in uh, their own individual giant bubbles. And Jens, you think that's enough? No, because uh, what's a concert without an audience? The audience was in giant bubbles as well. Are you serious? How are, how are people breathing? They're in these giant bubbles, and you can see these bubbles like at fairs and stuff. Like even Fern uh, went in one, I think, last summer at the uh, Pirates Festival in Vallejo, uh, and uh, and you know rolled around in it on water. So it's you know there's a breathing system in the bubble. It's not a hundred percent locked. It's got like a zipper and everything. Oh, I gotcha. So, so you okay, can... so basically, these are big, big bubbles. You can you can stand in them. You can run in them. Yeah. Um, and you, apparently, you can even have your band member in one, um, and you can play their instruments. The instruments were in the yeah. bubbles too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the instruments are in the bubbles too, and uh, including an entire drum set. Yes, two drum sets in one bubble, actually. So 
One this yeah that's a I mean that one was a bigger bubble but uh but they they were in bubbles and so they did this performance and like I said the audience was in bubbles even like I, they cut to a shot of a mother and and a kid uh, in one bubble uh, <laughs> and and it was it was just super freaking creative so um, they uh, they did the, they performed their song race for the prize um, um, yeah and. Let me see. I think that's awesome. I my my I'm just my mouth was just open trying to imagine this entire scene. And okay, number one, I'm gonna say how fun is that? That would be a blast, right? Yeah. Because I mean how many times in your life are you gonna have that experience? Well, for, for Wayne Coyne, a lot, but <laughs> but for, <laughs> for for most people okay. not so much. Yeah. Good enough, right, exactly. So most people probably won't have that opportunity ever. And um it's just hilarious, you know? I mean, it's not the most ideal setup, right? It's, it's really kind it's not of practical, cumbersome no. and sort of claustrophobic, and the sound quality is not great if you're a um, if you're playing a, a, uh, an instrument in a bubble and if you're listening to music inside of a bubble. But holy shit, I'd love to go to a show like that. Yeah, yeah, that would be really a unique, memorable experience. So oh, yeah, that was a good wow. one to start with. What do you got, Jens? You got a story for us. Well, before I transition into this story, which is also awesome, uh, I've got to ask you, did anybody's bubble burst? <laughs> I don't think any bubbles were burst in the uh, creating of this concert. Oh, good. No bubbles were harmed in the creating of that uh, that concert? No. Okay. Oh, good. I was worried about that. Okay. So let me transition. I got some news about rage against the machine. Killing in the name of. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so they have re-entered the U.S. charts in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests. So, let me talk about that. Uh, The band's self-titled debut album is seeing a surge in popularity. Uh, Rage Against the Machine have re-entered the U.S. charts, uh, have re-entered the U.S. charts following... Um, protests, not just here in the U.S., but protests worldwide for racial equality. And of course, you know, as we know, this is all in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death. Yeah. So um, this album goes back to 1992. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a dated album. It's a, What it's... were you doing back in 92? Let's oh put my... some context into this. Oh my what gosh. was happening in 92? I was nine years old, so I was in fourth grade, and uh, one of like two or three kids in the fourth grade at the private school that I went to, it was miserable. It was awful, right? Yeah. And you weren't even 10. I mean, no. if you had had an awesome dad who had a tall dorky friend that liked water fights uh-huh. you would have had to look forward to you know having a water fight where you got to see him fall down and like right, bleed, right. bleed out i didn't have any of that so <laughs> you didn't have any of that yeah so okay so that it was a pretty it was a pretty uh tough time apparently back in 1992 tougher for some others i imagine <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> some people some people had it harder than others Okay, so anyway, um, back in 92, they had their self-titled album, and it appeared at number 174 in the Billboard 200. It also reached number 8 in the iTunes album chart. Hmm. Was iTunes out back in 1992? (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, You were talking talking about back then or now? 
Did we seriously, was there iTunes back in 1992? Was there an iTunes store? No, right? No. It uh, it came around like around 2001 or something, right? Like Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. Anyway, whatever. So the album's built Yeah, 2001. Peak. January 9th, 2001. So I, ah, I, I call that, yeah. You're on it. Yeah. All right. The album's Billboard chart peak came in 94, so two years later, and it went from 174 all the way down to number 45. Wow. Um, in the UK, in fact... It made number seventeen. So why is it right. why is it popular now, Jens? Tell me. Oh, you're trying to get to the point. I'm trying is to get to the point. Saying? Wait, wait, this is a long podcast. I'm trying to. <laughs> long, okay, 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 I'll hurry. I'll hurry my ass up. Okay, so Rage's uh, debut contains their best-known single, "Killing in the Name of," which attacks white supremacy and institutional racism in the police and has taken on increased relevance in the wake of Floyd's death. Okay, so here they made the song back in 92, and it all of a sudden has relevance all over again um, right now. So that's why this album obviously has, um, you know, regained its popularity. Yeah. It's, um, it's I mean, it's really relevant right now. And, you know, honestly, like... Uh, I was supposed to see Rage Against the Machine in April, but obviously that changed after all this happened. So it's uh, but man, what a what a time to for their music to be relevant. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I'm trying to get some info to see where this album is now on the charts, but I don't have that. It's it's there. It's on the charts. We could say safely. Yeah, it's there. It's definitely on the map again. I think that's fantastic. I mean, unfortunately, you know, it brings out... Unfortunately, it takes a, an epic catastrophe, you know, to make this album popular. But yeah, how awesome is that? You know, that there's music out there that speaks to times where, um, where that music wasn't necessarily written in, right? Yeah, it, it's like okay, you know, we've had we've had racism in history, you know, since forever. That's nothing new, but um, I'm just saying it's you know it's it's great to have albums like this come back because of the because of the you know because of these causes. So I agree. That's it, man. Jens, I have a story that's not so positive, and that is oh. it is about Dashboard Confessionals lead singer Chris Caraba, uh, who, who's been on the program before. Um, his, uh, he was seriously injured in, uh, in an accident. Oh, no. Um, he's, he was hospitalized, um, on June 6th, uh, after, uh, after he was in a motorcycle accident. Uh, he shared the following details with his fans. Hi friends. On June 6th, I was in a motorcycle accident. My injuries were severe, but not life threatening. I owe the amazing doctors, nurses, and medical team treating me my endless gratitude. I am determined to make a full recovery, but I have surgeries and months of rehab to come. He said, I'd also like to thank my family and friends for coming together to support me in this time of need. Uh, To all reading this, I would like to say thank you for standing by me through my recovery. This will be difficult physically, emotionally, and financially, and I'm grateful to have your support as I go through it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, thoughts with... Chris Caraba and a speedy recovery, really. It's uh, it's tough. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep him in our thoughts, man. Wishing him all the best and stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, you got one more story for us, Jens? 
Uh, I do. I do. Uh, this story is about uh, David Gilmore, and it's hilarious that I'm um, that I've got this story to present because I just I just read about this uh, on social media. I think it was yesterday. I'm not exactly sure. So this is sort of fresh in my mind. Um, anyway, so David Gilmore is releasing his first new song in five years. Wow. Okay. And when I first read that, I thought, oh, my God, that's really, really, really cool, until I started reading more about what it was about. Um, so anyway, I'll continue. Uh, so anyway, uh, as we know, David Gilmore is the guitarist in Pink Floyd. Yes. He is releasing his first new song, and it's part of an audiobook project. Um, it's part of an audio project with author Polly Samson. And... Um, Polly Samson also happens to be uh, David Gilmore's wife. Okay. So they collaborated uh, together and, uh, and did this audiobook project. So um, inspired by a character from the novel and co-written by Samson called Yes, I Have Ghosts, um, we were, we're going to see a debut on June 25th of um, what's called A Theater for Dreamers. Mm, okay. Yeah, okay. So, a theater for dreamers. So, uh, just in a nutshell, it's set on an idyllic island uh, in Greece. Uh, back in the 60s, the story captures a hazy, sun-drenched days of an expat bohemian community of poets, painters, and musicians. And this is Samson's fifth work of fiction. The characters live tangled lives that are ruled by their king and queen. And da, 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 da. so if you like audiobooks with Pink Floyd guitar music, <laughs> there's one, there's one for you. For you. Yeah. Right. This is going to be for you. It's, it's in each crowd. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, so she, the way I understand it, she has a really, really amazing, um, narrator voice so i think she's the one that actually reads the book it's probably better that and way then, yeah and then uh his music is gonna be in there throughout the reading and i'm not sure if it's the entire time or just during certain scenes or or what um so if you want to hear some of that music you got to listen to the audiobook exactly you gotta listen to the audiobook um Okay, the audiobook format has so much untapped potential, says Gilmore. I am surprised more musicians have not creatively collaborated with authors, narrators, and audiobook producers in this way before. Uh, the two worlds seem to seamlessly, uh, seamlessly link, and music can really help to bring audiobooks to life in unexpected ways. And I remember reading that um, it just sort of came, this idea just sort of came together because they were quarantined together, right? So it kind of made sense to <laughs> try this out um, and to see how it would, would go because they were together anyway. Yeah, I mean, they're stuck together, you know, so might as well, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, I'll just uh, end the story with um, when I was reading this on social media the other day. Um, like I said before, I was at first, you know, excited. I'm like, oh, my God, Gilmore, Gilmore's coming out with some music? Oh, that's awesome, man. He is legendary. And then the more I read it, the more I realized, oh, it's like an audiobook thing, and he's like background music. And I started reading the comments, and and you know, people always have to make jokes and stuff, and they're saying, oh yeah, whatever, it's background audio music. And 
and you know she's forcing him to do it and now we know who wears the pants and Right. Yeah. People were making fun of the poor guy. Wow. That's that's special. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. so anyway, good bit for them. Good for them. Good for them indeed. And Jens, I have one more story to wind us out, and I'll let you take a guess at who it involves. Uh, Dave Grohl. That's right. Um, oh, lucky guess. To a degree, this is a little little bit of a stretch, but it uh, it's Foo Fighters news. So, uh, so uh, huge U.S. promoter Danny Wimmer presents, who are behind the likes of Aftershock Festival, which is in Sacramento, uh, Louder Than Life, Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival, and Welcome to Rockville. They've just launched a new streaming series featuring Foo Fighters, Metallica, and more. Um, Offstage with DWP is set to host performances and exclusive interviews. Um, uh, via YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook, providing fans who are missing live music. That's you and I. Uh, yep, desperately. Yes, with uh, li- with unique and original content deeply rooted in the rock and roll lifestyle we, uh, we all love and crave. Um, so a lot of artists, venues, and promoters have immersed themselves uh, in producing virtual content amid COVID-19 uh, to keep music alive and feel the souls of fans around the world. Uh, while we all miss the energy of live music, the content being produced in this new era of social distancing is truly bringing us all together in ways we'd never imagined, said uh, Danny Wimper, presents statement. Um, and uh, so uh, in light of not being able to have Metallica's planned dual headlining sets across their festivals in 2020, uh, Metal Titans are kicking off off stage with DWP this uh, Friday with a set um, in Columbus, Ohio from 2017 and elsewhere Foo Fighters are set to air select songs from their headline set from Sonic Temple last year while there will be new interviews with members of Papa Roach, Shinedown, Lamb of God uh, and Rise Against and others um, so this is the, just the beginning of uh, Offstage with DWP well, I can't wait to see you all and celebrate our love of the live experience with everyone they know that this is going to fill the void until we meet again stay safe and rock on um and uh so that's the story uh, though i'll tell you i've you know like bottle rock has been producing these weekly set you know sh- they've been sharing sets with artists of you know from the past and stuff and it's just like i just can't it's tough for me to connect with that because I, you know i might want to watch it live if i'm not there or something uh right. you know on tv but in terms of going back and watching like i'm like i can youtube you know concert footage from and, and grant it might not it's not going to be produced necessarily but mm-hmm. i don't know it's tough for but me there's to always the that. internet to go back to look at some some sort of footage i can always scratch that itch right so uh, yeah exactly exactly so yeah i've been getting these little news i I don't know i think i'm on the email uh list or something for bottle rock but i do get these these things about um you know some bottle rock online event that you can watch but i haven't really paid that much attention to it and i've just sort of assumed that this is archival footage or something that they're bringing back i mean it's it's not new footage it's from the past at least the past couple of years that they've been uh, doing it so yeah. so it's like quote-unquote live from the archives type thing yes but they're yeah. hyping it and it's how they are able to connect with people i guess so i'm sure yeah. there are people that like it and it's great but uh-huh. i just haven't been able to invest that time into into yeah. it so 
I think it's cool. I mean, it's not it's not a new original idea, but it's 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 satisfying to some to some you know extent. Well, we all kind of wait for our lives to get back to normal if that ever happens. If it ever happens, well, fingers crossed. But we'll keep doing this podcast while we can. And Jens, we have a new episode next week with Joe Lewis Walker, who was on the program about four years ago almost. I was surprised when I looked back at how long ago that was and that yeah. and how long you've been doing the pod also, which... I know. I was I was just kind of a newbie back then, and yeah. I remember him very clearly and his amazing boots. Which I <laughs> had to bring up because I knew you wouldn't let me love it down if I didn't bring it up. So <laughs> Yeah, I needed an update on his boots, so going to look forward to that interview. Yes, yeah, so we got that next week, and that's our episode for today, so... We'll catch for all of us here at Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schippel. And that is Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time.